0: My name is Neil. My wife, Jean, and I, we've been on staff at New Life Church for about 12 years or so. It's my son, Roman. We've got two girls as well. Um, We went about two-ish years ago, and we went back to our hometown, which is Columbus, Ohio, and we started a church uh, in Columbus. I'm trying to think, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I'm trying to think if anything happened in the last year and a half that would make starting a church difficult, but I can't can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, It's very difficult, extremely difficult to do. Um, We came back to downtown Little Rock about five months ago, and um, we're there with Fitzhill and Bronson, and we're pastoring there, and we're thrilled to be back. The crazy thing about what happened in the last year and a half, so uh, Columbus, Ohio, was very strict. Uh, They would actually fine you if you were not wearing a mask outside. They would fine you, and even up until, so you couldn't gather in groups more than 10 up until June of this year. They just took that mandate off, and now that mandate is actually back again. It's it's just a totally different ballgame there. Very, very difficult to gather people, so we just did small groups, house parties, watch parties. We served in pockets of people, but we couldn't get more than 10. So collectively, it was doing well, but you can't gain momentum. And so I just want to say, don't take for granted the fact that we can actually get together and, and actually come to church. Um, I know a lot of you guys, this might be, you know, one of your first... I met a couple that was here last service, it was their first time back in like a year or so. I get it. Um, one of the things that we learned that uh, I don't know that we would have learned is that instead of getting people to come be a part of our big thing as a church, which is especially when you're starting a church, you're desperate to get people like, hey, listen, we're doing this big thing. Please come be a part of it. What we did is we shifted our focus to can we be there for their small thing? Can we be there for their moments? And we started pastoring people in ways that I think we wouldn't have done if we hadn't gone through this this past year. So what I mean by that is in the last year and a half, more so than collectively over the years of ministry, we have helped more people walk through divorces, job loss, sickness, loss of a loved one, um, attacks, anxiety. There's just so many things that people started battling through. And I'm sure people were always battling through it, but we just got there in in the middle of, of the mess and just walked through it with them. So we changed a lot of the way that we pastor just because being there in the middle of it... Um, You just walk a little bit differently. You kind of go slower. It's going to take longer than what you want it to. So it changed a lot of how we pastor. There's a guy I want to introduce you to. You may have heard of this. I don't know. Time Magazine and National Geographic just did a big bio on this guy. His name is James Maroon. James Maroon did something. He started a job uh, that he had not done and no one had ever done before on September 11th, 2010. He climbs down the stairs to the World Trade Center to the pools, the reflection pools. Anybody been to the World Trade Center to the um, okay. If you know, it's really quiet. It's one of the quietest places in New York City. He used to be a facilities manager at the World Trade Center. He was there the day that the planes hit. And as the, the construction was going on, as the cleanup was going on, he was still doing work there. But he volunteered to be one of only two people that clean the reflection pools every night. So he walks down the stairs, and he unloads all the equipment at 10 p.m. every night and works an evening shift, works eight hours, because he said he would watch these people come from all over the world and have these moments of just complete breakdown. The the grief was a lot. The PTSD was a lot. And he said this quote, which I absolutely love, because they said, why did you volunteer for this? Because you didn't have to. He said, "Um, I choose to get in there and help clean up the mess for other people so they don't have to. It's like uh, he, he volunteered for this thing and, and it's something he didn't have to do because he could see the look in people's eyes when, when they get there. And that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit today is we are all going through a lot, but I want to talk about um, the good news of Jesus. At the end of the day, the gospel is the good news. And what is the good news? The good news is Jesus and I want to go through a section of Scripture that maybe you're familiar with, but we have to be able to find answers to how do we deal with difficult situations or moments of pain or moments of loss. How do we deal with that? And I want to go specifically to the Gospels because we can go a lot of different ways. I just want to see how did Jesus handle this. So Kristen is going to uh, uh, she's going to read this for us. This section of Scripture you're probably familiar with. Um, so this is a moment where, where Lazarus is one of Jesus' friends, and he dies, and Jesus shows up on the scene. So we're going to put it up here on the screen for you guys if, if you want to read it there. Uh, Kristen's going to read it. It's John eleven thirty two 32 through 45. Okay.
1: When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he, had laid, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him.
0: Incredible, thank you. She could sing as well. This is amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. She hates us. Um, so there's a there's a, a very obvious verse in the middle of this. You got everybody knows the uh, eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept, right? If you've ever gone to a vacation Bible school and they gave away free candy, if you memorize the verse, this is your go-to. This is a guarantee. You're going to get some Swedish fish out of this. But if you have ever lost a loved one. Like, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think, I think pretty much everybody in this room has experienced a loss of, of a loved one at some point in your life. If you've ever gone through that sense of loss, like what Jesus goes through here, there's this moment that we have where we, we would do whatever we could to take away that moment. Like, we said it. I've said it. Um, God, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. God, I'll, let me do this. And, and we can get really frustrated at this concept because we're human beings, we're like, if I would do whatever I could to help this situation, God, why didn't you do it? We can get a little frustrated at this concept of there's, there's a loving God who is out there that could rescue, that could fix, that could do all this, but for some reason he hasn't, and it can be a little frustrating if, if we're just being honest. And the reason why I think it's frustrating is a lot of us have this misconception of who God really is because we think, if we're, be, if we're being honest, we think that God... Is, is exists to, to fix our problems if we're being honest, because God can right, because he could do anything, and if we've lost a loved one and we've gone through that moment of loss or things don't go the way that we thought they were going to go, we get frustrated and go, God, why didn't you do this? Or, God, why didn't you do that? And these same people in this story have the exact same thing happen. Like, if you've thought that, you're not alone because they were thinking the same thing. Like, Jesus, if you would have showed up a little earlier, this wouldn't happen. Or why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And it's this, this wrestling match with, with this concept. Like, how could a loving God let this happen? And this entire passage of Scripture in John, it shows us something. Because Jesus' friend dies, and Jesus has a response. Now, I don't want to gloss over this. We have to say this, because I don't want you to think that this is not as important. But God raises Lazarus from the dead, okay? We could, I could turn this microphone off, we can go home, and that would be enough, But we think that that is Jesus' response to this situation. And if we're not careful, we can miss there are three others. Before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he responds three other ways. And if we're looking at that scripture, it comes down to this. Jesus wept. He cried. But it also said he was deeply moved in his spirit. And then it goes on and says multiple times that he was troubled. Those are responses. We don't look at that because that's not fixing the situation. And there's there's a key to that, and we'll get to that in a second. The, the thing that we wrestle with, if we're being honest, is we wrestle with, God, why did you let this happen? Or why did this happen? Or why didn't you do this? And as I look in Scripture, I don't see a lot of answers to the why question. If I'm just being honest, we don't get a lot of why, but... If we would change our focus over to God, what are you doing in this situation? I think we're going to get some of those answers. So every time that you know Jesus sees sickness, what did He do? I don't understand some of the why behind it, but what did He do? Well, He healed him. When He saw death, He didn't say, "Well, that's just my will." I guess you're going to have to go ahead and suffer. That's not what He says. He He responded. Um, how How did we get here? So I love looking at this culturally, uh, theologically. What was historically happening at this time? And I love studying some of the scripture and then coming back to now and saying, why do we respond this way? Because I see how they responded to it. There's a a phrase, it's called meticulous providence. That's probably not a phrase you're going to throw around. If you want to, I guess you could. It worked. I don't recommend it. But meticulous providence, what that really means is, like if you're on the street, what that means is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God really comes down to, it's basically this, is that God is in control of every single detail in the universe. Can we agree on that? Everybody agree on that? We're okay with that? All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Just go along with me on this one. That could be, that's a fake, yeah. I'll know I'll know if you're not with me. I'm kidding. Um, the way that we actually, we don't think about meticulous providence. We don't think about the sovereignty of God. We say cliche statements that go along with that. See if any of these sound familiar. One of those is like, well, you know, God's in control, I guess. That's, that's something we legitimately say. Think about the statements that we say that explain God's sovereignty. There's a couple more, some good ones. Well, I don't really get it, but Lord, he works in some mysterious ways, don't he? That is us trying to explain the sovereignty of God. Well, hey, I know it's terrible. But the best is yet to come, isn't it? What are we doing? Like We, we, we say these statements. We think that they're helpful. Like, hey. All these bad things, they happen for a reason, don't they? I mean, golly, please. Here's, and I'll explain to you why that can get really frustrating and why that can be so, um, it's a trap. Because on the front end, it sounds very hopeful, but on the back end, it gives us a crisis of faith. I'll explain it like this. So Augustine, it, this is not a new concept. This whole, this whole sovereignty of God and uh, and that meticulous providence. Augustine in the fourth century is the one who came up with this. And here's it's really simple. He basically says if something does happen, that means it's God's will. But also if something doesn't happen, it's God's will. Now you can see how that now there's a little bit of a trap in that because how do we wrestle with that? Well, here's how that plays out practically. We start off with that statement like. Listen, God, I I know you're sovereign. Lord, I know that you work all things out for the good of those, but my kid is sick. That is this this back-ended crisis of faith. We we say things like, well, God, I know you have a plan, but I'm still single. I'm in my 30s, and I don't know if I'm ever going to find anybody. God, I know you work everything out for a reason. I know you have a reason. I know the best is yet to come, but I just lost my dream job, and I don't have a backup right now. Do you see how that can get really, really dicey? That can get a little tricky for a lot of us. So this is, this is a little bit flawed in, in its thinking, and here's why. We as human beings tend to think of, uh, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, is an either-or mentality. Either God is totally in control or he's totally not. And we don't think about it other than that straight line between the two, and we kind of try and walk that line. Like either, God, you're totally or you're totally not. And that's not necessarily the way that it works. It's more of this woven together. He is in the fabric of everything in between. We tend to think this or that, and that's not how God works. Now, we can all agree, right, that God is sovereign. Here is what we don't all agree on. To what extent is God sovereign? That's where the questions start coming into play. So what I want to do is this. I want to go back to a scripture in the Gospels that we're all very familiar with. It's the Lord's Prayer. Everybody know the Lord's Prayer? I'm going to assume that. Okay, good. Lie to me. It's okay. Just you can, Everybody's nodding. It's okay. We'll put it up on the screen. But I want to read something here. And this is Jesus who's teaching this. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. There's something that you may not have seen because this is so familiar to us. Something maybe you haven't seen before. And, and we'll, we'll come back to this. In Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 10, Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus is telling us something without telling us something right here. It's like a Christopher Nolan film. Like, you're not gonna figure this out until three quarters of the way through this thing. It's very frustrating on the front end. But he says something in here that if we're not careful, we miss. What Jesus is actually saying is that earth is a place where God's will is not necessarily done. Why else would he pray this? He's saying that heaven is a place where God's will is done. But earth is a place where it's not always done. It's sometimes done. Which is it's like kind of mind-blowing. You're like, wait a minute. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Why not? Have you ever thought of it? Like, why is God's will not always done here on earth? And the simple answer is because there are multiple wills at play here. There's more than one will. When we look at this, um, okay, we know that God gave us free will, right? The, 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 the ability or the choice, the creative liberty the creative freedom to choose him. Because if he didn't, if God is up in heaven and he is basically saying, listen, anytime you're about to make a mistake or make a decision that is bad for you, he's, gonna be, he's just going to taser you from heaven with like 10,000 megawatts of something. I don't really know what it is, but he's just going to zap you from heaven. What, and I know a lot of us are like, well, it would be better because then I wouldn't, I wouldn't sin or wouldn't make mistakes or whatever. Really? Would that be better? Would that be better? It would be crippling. The universe would be crippled stuck in a moment because we would be fearful. We wouldn't move. We wouldn't progress. So what God did is he gave us free will. We have the right and the freedom to choose to be a part of God's incredible design and plan, or we can do our own thing. We don't have to, which is, uh, it's kind of risky. You agree? Like he could He could have made all of us do that, but then it wouldn't be, it's not, it's not free will. So we can partner with God in all of his goodness, or we can do our own thing. Now, Evil is, is, is definitely at work here in the world. It's a byproduct of that freedom and that liberty that God gives us. But there are other wills at play. What are the other wills at play on earth? Do you have, we have God's will, right? We have your will. We have another person's will. And just so you know, there are some crazy people out there. Their wills are not super nice. Right, I'm trying to be kind about it, but there's some people that are messed up out there. And then the last one is there's Satan and the powers of darkness. You're like, okay, you had me on the first three, like the wills, I get all that. But as soon as you said Satan, like that's just not, I don't know. And here's why, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, because I, I think sometimes we can assume or gloss over that everybody agrees or believes in this. But in 2021, it is very, very popular to think that Satan isn't necessarily real. He's more of a, an abstract concept. He represents evil, and he's over in that category of the room. But over here, this is everything that's good, everything that's all right. But, but Satan, the devil, I don't know. And the reason why we don't believe is because we're educated, we're deep-thinking people. We don't want to think sometime, something like that is real. Now, Colossians 1.16, we won't really get into all this, but Colossians 1.16 really says there are demons, spirits, princes, principalities, heavenly beings, and powers at work. Now, you don't have to choose that, but we have, as a culture and a society, we have caricaturized the devil. Satan is in sketch comedies on Saturday Night Live, and he's everywhere, and whatever, he's a cartoon, and he's, we, we don't want to think that that is real. Now, the, the problem with that is that because God gave us free will, um, the, the problem with that is it is dangerous if we don't agree that Satan and the devil is actually real, because the danger is we can end up blaming things that go wrong evil things that happen. We could blame it on somebody else. We could blame it on ourselves or even more dangerously, we can blame evil things that happen on God. And he's he's not into that. He's not causing these things to happen. So there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I I, want to read it because this is, is incredible. This is talking about free will. He says, If a state of war in the universe is a price worth paying for human response, if the craziness if, if the absolute chaos that is going on around us in the world, if the state of war that the universe is in is a price worth paying for the freedom to choose Jesus, it has to be worth it. It has to be. God's not going to make us make these decisions. So, we get into this point where we go, well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I believe the devil's real. What, what, what we've done as Christians, and if I could just blame us on this for a little bit, what we as Christians do is we end up blaming a lot of things on the devil sometimes. That lets you, and I'll just I'll, I'll play out exactly how this goes. You, you're, you're coming home from the grocery store. You're in the car with your spouse or whatever, and you guys get in a massive fight. Like, it's, it's bad. And we mutter under our breath or we tell somebody else, like, I can't believe I got in a fight. It's unbelievable, man. The devil's just so busy trying to ruin my marriage. Oh, or, or, and just go with me on this, or maybe you're really stressed out at work and you were kind of a jerk a little bit. Like, can we, can we be honest? We just like to go, man, the devil just be so busy sometimes trying to ruin my marriage. Like, really? That's the characterization of the devil. We try and pin a lot of stuff on us. And honestly, it's not necessarily that. But the danger is that we could pin these things on God when we don't agree that there is a real enemy. The Bible talks about it. He says the father of lies and there is no truth in him. So we can incorrectly assign blame toward God. Now, let's go back to John eleven thirty five. 35. When, when Jesus' friend dies, when Lazarus dies, the reason why Jesus wept is so compelling is because Jesus is creator God. And he cried. He's sovereign, in control of everything. And he cried. Like, that was his response I want you to imagine this. Just think about this for a second. There, imagine here in town, in Fable, there's, there's an art gallery. An art gallery owner has spent his entire life curating and aggregating and getting some of the finest pieces of art, some of the, the best paintings, the best sculptures, whatever. This is his life's work. He has poured into gathering the best of the best from the world to be right here in town. And one night, some vandals come in, and they break open the door and they trash the place, rip paintings in half, they smash sculptures, they, they destroy the place, shatter glass everywhere, and they leave it in shambles. The art gallery owner, he gets the phone call from the police. he shows up. there's red and blue lights. There's the yellow caution tape. And he, as, he, as he walks onto his property, he would be overcome with grief at this sense of loss of his life's work, everything that he put into it. I want you to think about this section of Scripture where Jesus shows up on the scene, his best friend has has died, people are chaotic around him, people are pointing the finger, blaming, and he has stepped into the human story in this moment. And the reason why he cries is because that sense of grief and loss that he is experiencing in the moment Jesus has a very emotional response to it. He's troubled in his spirit. He's deeply moved. What does Jesus do? Not, God, why are you doing this? Or, Jesus, why didn't you show up earlier? But what does Jesus do actually gives us comfort in this moment. And here's why. What Jesus' response is, it's not stoicism. It's not neglect. He cries and then he acts. He is deeply troubled and moved in his spirit, and then he acts, and we forget about that part. We look at just what he does, and that's not the only part of the story. This is good news. This is incredibly good news because God doesn't just necessarily fix everything immediately. In the deepest possible sense, God cares about it, and he's at work inside of it, not from the outside, which is what we tend to think. Like, God, you're over there, and I'm here. You don't know what my problem is. I understand that you're, you're separate, you're different, you're whatever. No, he is right in the middle of it. And the way that God, in the person of Jesus, takes this situation on, is He remember, he's on mission, on purpose. He takes and shoulders every evil thing. Every painful thing, every wicked thing, the grief, the shame, the sin, he shoulders all of it, puts it on his back, and takes it to the cross. And he crucifies it in that moment, and that is substitutionary atonement. That is huge, and that's very simply this. Jesus dies so that we can live. Jesus died in our place. We want him to fix that situation, and he's here on mission for something much bigger than that. But don't mistake for a second that he didn't come and get involved emotionally in what was going on. He's not stoic. He's not on the outside. He's right there in the middle of this with us. This is what it looks like when God is at work in the painful moments of our lives. This is what it actually looks like. I'm going to read you this quote from a guy, his name is Greg Boyd, he's a, he's a Bible professor, he's smarter than I am, that's why I'm not reading a quote from me, I'll read one of his. Um, here's what he said, he said, Christ's incarnation, death and resurrection, just incarnation means taking on flesh, the fact that he came here and took on human form. His incarnation, his death and his resurrection reveal that though God is not culpable for the evil in the world, it means he's not to blame He nevertheless takes responsibility for the evil in the world. And in taking responsibility for it, he overcomes it. Please get this. On the cross, God suffers at the hands of evil. Let that sink in just for a second. God and Jesus never separated in all of eternity until that moment on the cross. He understands what it's like to go through pain and suffering. And in that moment... What we think is that we're alone in that suffering, but God has not left us alone in the pain. He's right there in the middle of it with us. So it goes on. He says, In this suffering and through his resurrection, he in principle destroys evil. And through the cross and resurrection, evil is not something God wills into existence. It's something he wills out of existence. So God... Through Jesus on the cross, it meant that he was involved in healing human pain. He's not outside of it. He's not passive. He's actively involved in the middle of it. So the answer to the problem of pain that we go through, the difficult loss that we have, the, the difficult things that we deal with, the problem and the answer to the problem of pain is Jesus didn't bring optimism. Optimism, just to be clear, is human. It's man-made. It's wafer thin. It's hakuna matata. It's as thin as a wheat thin. There's not much structure to it. It'll break under pressure. What he brought is hope. Now, something always follows hope. Just so you guys know, something always follows hope. It's peace. Anytime in the Bible you see that hope is there, peace follows right after it. Now, what is the hope that Jesus brought? He's coming back. He already took care of this, but he's coming back. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to push pause on all of that. I just wanna, I'm want to say this statement because um, in, in Romans chapter 8, there's this incredible moment where um, the Apostle Paul, he says, listen, there, there's, no, there's no comparison to the hard times that we're going through to the up-and-coming present times, the, the things that are ahead of us. And he says that because we like to compare. We think right now God is outside of time and all of that. But Garrett said something, and he said it about the Apostle Paul who wrote that, about there's no comparison from the present hard times to the up and coming. He's, the Apostle Paul in Acts, Garrett already said that he and Silas are in prison, and God shows up. What did he do? He shook the ground with an earthquake, and the doors opened up, and they were freed. Now, I want you, you guys can go do this later on. Um, it's, I think it's Acts 26. Uh, maybe it's Acts 23. That's not the only time that, that Paul is in jail. There's another time that Paul, he's on trial. They throw him in prison, and wa- watch the difference. There's one scripture that says, the Lord shows up in his prison cell with him and ministers to him and encourages him. God himself literally sits down inside the prison cell next to Paul and he encourages him. It's interesting to me that God could break open that prison. He could do whatever. He could break every shackle, every chain, open up every door. He could do any of that. And it's very comforting to know that he could, but he doesn't always do it. Why doesn't he always do it? Because he's more interested in being with you during that moment of pain, then fixing everything and making it go away. That's why Jesus took and shouldered all the pain and the burden of sin on the cross. And that's why he went there. Why? Because at the end of the day, the thing that Jesus is most concerned with is a relationship with you and sitting down with you in the middle of it. And it's so helpful for me to know that in this moment, when his best friend dies, he first, before he ever heals, before he restores and brings him back to life, he starts off with an emotional response that shows me that he cares and he understands. That is good news. That's incredibly helpful. I'm going to tell you this story. Um, I, I, I don't like doing this, but I'm gonna to, to do it ahead of time and uh, it's just because it's a, it's a rough story. There are, there are things that I know you know this from watching Garrett and Jason. And your pastors do it, and it's something that Pastor Rick teaches us very, very well, is to, to make sure that we have moments where we're transparent and we're just honest. Because here's the, the tendency can be, and I've sat there and I've listened to people and, and I've thought to myself, they have no clue what I'm going through. They don't know, they're living a different life or whatever as a pastor, and it's not true. And I just want you to know, we don't always stand up here and tell you things that we have conquered and overcome. We're willing to tell you things that we are working through right now. The reason why this message is important to me, and I don't ask right now, I don't ask why, is because of what I'm about to tell you. So uh, when we decided to shut our church down in Columbus, in ministry, it's the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Um, Incredibly difficult. We made that decision and then on April 24th, I'd spent a month packing up all of our gear. Uh, There's something you don't know about me. I used to make a lot of, uh, made a documentary and some short films, things like that. So over the years I've acquired a lot of cameras and editing gear and all that kind of stuff. what I did is I categorized, labeled, packed everything back up and put it in a trailer. Every speaker, every light, every keyboard, every drum machine, everything that we had, every soundboard, everything, cameras, kids equipment, all of it, everything that we owned from the church that we'd acquired over a a long time I packed up into a trailer on April 24th because on April 27th I was going to drive it back down here to give to New Life Church so that at least at the very least what we still had could be a part of a church, it could still help people. On April 26th I went and I had to take a, uh, I didn't say this in the other one, I had to take a, a piano stand just like this it was a piano stand just like that. I had to take that and put it in the back of the trailer. I drove over to the storage unit. It has three of the biggest locks that I could find on it. And when I got my truck to the, the trailer, uh, the locks are off. All the, the latches are broken off, and the trailer's open, and there's, it's all gone. All gone in two, two days. I packed it all up, and in two days, it was all gone. And you have this moment where you just stand there, and it's just complete disbelief. You just—I mean, I say numb, but it was like it was worse than numb. I couldn't feel my arms and my legs. It was difficult. Uh, what happened is, some police actually found two of the four guys. The four guys had gone on a ten-day crime spree. They stole multiple cars. They—if uh, you valet park your car at a hotel—I would just say be careful of that. They had so much gear that they'd stolen over these ten days from the Columbus area. Um, and they were selling all of it. It was, it was all drug money and all that kind of stuff. Um, the cops actually got back a few pieces of gear, just destroyed, hammered, messed up. The sense of loss and the pain that you go through, and you cannot wrap your brain around why. Because I can't, I can't I, I'm just being just as gut-level honest with you as I can't, I can't figure out, like, God, why did you ask us to do this if this is what's going to happen? Do you see, like, God, it's your will for us to start this thing. But then why does this happen? And I kept coming back to that why question. God, why did you let this happen? Or God, why did it happen? God, why didn't I do this or should I have done this? The why question always leads you down a road where even if you did get an answer to that, you're gonna ask another question that is even more difficult. You don't get questions like why answered. When I go to the gospel, I can't find that stuff out. But what I had to shift my focus from was from why over to what. God, what are you doing in the middle of this? And sound very cliche we've met people in the police force and in through the judicial system that we never would have met in this process did god cause all of that? please hear me on this did god cause all that stuff to happen so that i could go over here and meet these police officers and minister to them and help grow food for them no but god can use that moment to reach somebody else but does he cause it no you have to know that's not the way god works but there are other wills at work You're not going to get an answer to the why. What you do have to understand, please, if you don't hear anything else I said, you have to understand this. In the middle of it, the most important thing to Jesus is being there with you, not fixing it like you want him to. He's not going to leave, he's not leaving. That's why what Garrett said is so important. To worship him through the difficult times and in the moment is important because we tend to leave, but he doesn't. He wants that connection through there to build off of. We want it fixed. What God is trying to do is he's trying to keep that connection between us and him strong. So the answer, as simple as it is to the problem of pain and the question of, of pain, the answer is that Jesus is the good news and he brings hope in every situation and there are times where that's gonna have to be enough but I promise you he's not leaving even if you have he's not leaving the relationship was that important to him that's why he, he's still focused on the cross all these other things happening imagine what he's doing in this moment When Lazarus dies and people are starting to antagonize him, like, Jesus, if you'd have come here on time, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm sure he is seeing it through this painful moment, but he's really looking towards Jerusalem because that's where the cross is. He's going, the way that I fixed this is there. That's where Jesus fixed it. That's the hope that we have. Can I pray for you?